more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. There's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. It is April 8th. Can you believe it? And you are tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. Uh, Currently, it's just after 7 p.m. And on a Sunday, that means it's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Chelsea Beheimer. And here at Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. On Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you are a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all of the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up and coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live. And should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. So tonight, we are joined by Megan Considine from the Marine Resources Management Program, and she is in her first year and primarily working with Dr. Steve Rumrill. Is that correct? Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Megan. We're excited to have you. Even despite these interesting circumstances, we still like to um, try to maintain some level of normalcy and talk about and think about our research. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing with Dr. Rumrill? Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I'm doing two research projects as a part of my thesis. Um, the first project is looking at an invasive mudworm, um, a parasitic polychaete that is harming product quality for the oyster aquaculture business. Um, so it's an emergent species. It's a new invasive species. Um, and so we are looking at eight different farms along the Oregon coast and trying to figure out the current distribution. My second project is an oyster restoration project in Yaquina Bay, Um, and we're using an innovative substrate material, working with an organization, Grow Oyster Reefs. Um, This it's a um, an oyster tile, and it biomimics the natural oyster beds, um, and it is made out of a calcium carbonate uh, concrete. And we are trying to look at um, a predator proofing design that Evelyn Tickle created um, to try and see if uh, we can possibly deter predation by an invasive green crab in the area. Wow. 
So it's hard to believe you are a first year master's student in all, all of that because that's a lot. Um, so I wanna I wanna come back to what you're doing with the oyster reef restoration because that's really cool and I know your heart is really in that project. But I think the burning question specifically with your um, looking at invasive species, you said you're working with eight is it eight or nine different farms, and you're eight farms. And so you're helping them kind of determine whether or not their farms are infected. Is that, how does that work? So I, um, I'll go to each farm and pick up 25 oysters and then we'll take them back to the lab and analyze them, check them, open them up and, and look for uh, signs of infection. And if we see some of the, so these mudworms create these unsightly blisters. So they burrow into the shell of the oyster and the oyster starts to grow over the mudworm and okay. creates these kind of blisters over the mudworm, which get filled with detritus or like dead organic matter, mud. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's it's pretty obvious when you, when you see a blister on the shell. And so if we see a blister, right. we mark that and then we go and extract the worm. Um, and then we preserve the worm and send it to a lab in Washington for genetic analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a part of a multi-statewide project. We're working with California, Oregon, Washington, and Alaska. Wow. So with such a huge project, I imagine that, you know, it's really tied up in the industry. And you said unsightly blisters. So that kind of sounds like it's not necessarily that it hurts the oyster it just doesn't look very good so no. yeah yeah so it, it doesn't necessarily make the meat inedible um but if, if you were to shuck the oyster and, and puncture a blister then that dead organic matter would kind of foul the meat so it kind of depends mm-hmm. um but in general it, it doesn't make the oyster inedible and um there's conflicting research some research saying that it it harms the oyster in sense of the um the growth um and then some mm-hmm. research kind of saying that it doesn't affect the oyster too much so okay so that's not certain but it is certain that the market value is affected <laughs> yeah definitely so a lot of oyster growers receive a lot of their primarily a lot of their funds through selling the oysters by the half shell um so they can still they could still sell the oysters for canning um, but selling to them by the half shell um, doesn't work when you have a bunch of unsightly blisters when you shuck them open. And from what I understand, the oyster um, industry is pretty big here in the Pacific Northwest. Where does it compare to like Dungeness crabs or how does it compare? I'm honestly, I'm not incredibly sure. I haven't studied the Dungeness crab industry, but I know it is a multi-million dollar industry in the Pacific Northwest. Okay. So it's up there. <laughs> Right. So how how is your field work? Are you able to right now with these circumstances do any sampling? Have you had any interaction with farmers since everything kind of changed? Yeah. So with the COVID issue, COVID-19 issue, I have not um, had any contact. I haven't done any sampling. Luckily, I completed my winter and spring sampling um, right before all of this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so my next round of sampling shouldn't be until late summer. Um, okay. So it's kind of pending on whether or not we'll have to yeah. postpone that. Um, and I could also potentially maybe not inter- necessarily interact with the growers, but they could leave the samples outside and I could just come pick up. 
Um, but all mm-hmm. of the, again, all of this kind of depends on on yeah. what the status is with everything. Yeah, I think for anyone who's listening who is, you know, a grad student who still has field work to do, that's one of the biggest areas of uncertainty. And I mean, you know, summer is field season for a lot of people, especially in natural sciences and not just because conveniently without classes or other responsibilities. But I think that's really hard. Do you have any sort of like backup plan or do you think you have enough data to go off of for your thesis? with that part of the project anyway? I I think it's great that I do already have data, so that could be a potential route that I just use that data. Um, mm-hmm. And then again, like we, we haven't, what we've discussed so far is just postponing the sampling, but again, it's right. just everything's so uncertain. Like this could last a yeah. year, it could last, you know, like it's, it's really hard to say, honestly. Um, yeah. I think also it depends on I, I work my lab the lab that I work through is with ODFW, um, so right. it, it depends on whether or not those labs are open for me to uh, process the samples. Um, so maybe I don't need to interact with the growers to receive the samples, but is it even possible for me to process them and analyze them? So, a lot of questions. Yeah, I initially when um, we learned about your work, I thought that was an interesting aspect of your project that it is involved not just you know it's not hardcore osu marine science it's also collaborating with odfw and the farmers and i thought that was a unique aspect but in something like this that almost makes it more challenging so that's an interesting point (laughs) yeah um well i guess that is to be determined and we'll just look forward to all of us will look forward to those things happening and things (laughs) being possible again um, but what about your, so your other project is with restoration. Is there, um, more or less, are you more or less limited to carry on with, with that project? Yeah. So that's also a little, um, pending in a way. Um, so the restoration project is we, we've applied for some grants and we're not totally secure with funding yet for that. Um, and then in addition to that, if we were to receive the funding, um, it involves, it, it's, it, it could, it's large scale. So it kind of involves, you know, having volunteers help. Um, right. and so if there's a limit to number of people gathering that could kind of affect, um, how many volunteers we can have, or if we could even mm-hmm. have volunteers come. Um, and then we are also in contact with a local hatchery and we're mm-hmm. not entirely sure if they're still in operation with all of the um, measures in, in place for COVID-19. And so part of the project was um, seeding some of the tiles in the shell to oh, transplant okay. live oysters. And so if, if we can't, we might have to change our methods and potentially just put the substrate out um, mm-hmm. for the existing population in the bay. Or mm. um, So it's kind of, we're, yeah. we're talking about how we can adjust the methods or... Um, right. Yeah, that might end up being sort of a different uh, research question. I mean, you know, might set you up to compare natural seeding versus maybe the following season having volunteers help. So it's, yeah, you have to kind of go back to the the drawing board. But I think one of the really interesting things about that project that you can still 
that doesn't really change are the the tiles themselves. So I'd love to hear more about that. You said the word biomimicry earlier. Can you kind of explain what that means for your tiles? Yeah, so a lot of um, oyster restoration projects, the limiting factor is a um, the availability of hard substrate or hard surface for oyster larvae to attach to um, and start mm-hmm. growing a reef. So a lot of restoration projects will transplant shell to make up for that, and then some use concrete substrates. And so some of the common um, applications of that are reef balls or um, oyster castles, which are basically cinder blocks stacked in kind of like Legos um, to create a castle structure. And the kind of the issue with those concrete substrates is that they they don't look anything like a reef. They might not be aesthetically pleasing to the community, kind of just this big concrete, you know, block out there. Um, So what's cool about Evelyn's design is that it's a concrete tile 12 about 12 inches by 12 inches that has these um like concrete oysters on it 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 mimics a natural oyster bed which is where that biomimicry comes in um so it's much more aesthetically pleasing it you know applying for permits to be able to put concrete out might be a bit easier because it, it does it doesn't obstruct like a you know a homeowner's view or things like that right that's interesting. It's kind of like we originally thought of artificial reefs as something we needed to engineer and didn't really take into account the kind of the natural law of, you know, how that engineering might be best implemented. I think um, I should have mentioned this earlier, but there is a blog post. So if you go to um, our Inspiration Dissemination blog page, uh, there's an article that we wrote about Megan's research, and it has some pictures uh, of the oysters she was talking about earlier being infected by the worms, but also some links. And there's a link in there to Evelyn's um, work, so you can kind of see what what those look like. Um, and where did she start this work? Because it's it's kind of new to the West Coast, is that right? Definitely new. Oyster restoration in general is kind of lagging behind on the West Coast is a little bit lagged behind um, what's going on on the East Coast. So Evelyn mm-hmm. is from um, the Chesapeake Bay area where a lot of oyster restoration uh, projects have emerged and kind of they're kind of leading the way for oyster restoration. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's actually where I'm from as well, which is where my um, interest in restoration, oyster restoration kind of sprouted mm-hmm. from. Um, and she's worked with a couple of uh, she's worked with a nonprofit actually in my hometown of Virginia mm-hmm. Beach, which is how I um, came across her name and started to be in contact okay. with her. Yeah. Very cool. So you're the nonprofit you were working for. Was that um, uh, associated with reef restoration? Is that where the connection? Yeah. Yeah. So I worked for a or I interned with a nonprofit, um, Lynn Haven River Now in Virginia mm-hmm. Beach, which is a restoration and um, education outreach nonprofit for um, a tributary to the Chesapeake Bay. Um, and they mm-hmm. work closely with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation as well to do oyster restoration projects. Um, awesome. So even being from the East Coast maybe doesn't necessarily immediately set you up to care about oyster reefs. So why oysters? What kind of led to this um, academic and career pursuit of oyster reef? protection and restoration yeah so so again growing up it definitely was that inspiration but I think what really kind of brought it to my radar was I was 
actually in elementary school and um, was a part of a program for another nonprofit in, in my hometown called Oyster Reef Keepers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was a part of kind of like a mini experiment. So the, the, the nonprofit gives or distributes um, oyster spat, which is like baby, you know, o- tiny little oysters to different public school um, mm-hmm. classrooms. And the classrooms get to see the growth of these oysters over the span of a year, do little experiments, get to learn about the oysters um, in their classrooms, the importance of oyster reefs for the surrounding ecosystem. Um, And then at the end of the year, we got to transplant the oysters onto a sanctuary reef. And so I really have that memory of being on the boat um, and being a part of that program. And what's really cool about it is in my undergraduate studies, I was actually able to intern for that nonprofit and be the guide for these students on the boat, um, transplanting the oysters. So it really came full circle. Yeah. Oh, that is really cool. Probably, you know, leading those kids and seeing them all lit up reminded you of how you felt. And I just, that's really neat that uh, you guys got to kind of raise these oysters, but also be a part of this scientific process where you got to kind of see it through. That's, that's awesome. (laughs) Okay, it makes sense what you're doing now. <laughs> Do you still have any connection with um, those nonprofits or or is there anything like that out here? I know you said the West Coast is a little slower, but are there any kind of school engagements? In- I, I have not come across any, at least in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the oyster restoration, from my understanding in Oregon, has happened with ODFW and with the Nature mm-hmm. Conservancy. I don't believe there's very many nonprofits doing mm-hmm. oyster restoration. Um, I think in California and Washington there are okay. there are more. Um, mm-hmm. There's more of that happening. Um, but I think I think it would be really awesome if there was like a school program similar to yeah. the yeah 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 maybe your future volunteer recruitment uh, for when you can do that <laughs> that could involve some some school groups. So you've got time to think about it and plan it out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you've got another year of your um, master's program. Do you have any vision of kind of where you, what direction you'd like to go kind of beyond these projects or do you want to stay connected with either of them? Yeah, I, um, with the Oyster Restoration Project, I would love to be a part of the long-term monitoring, which would occur after I've graduated, um, mm-hmm. and I definitely would love to stay, you know, in contact with all of the researchers for the Mudworm Project and see where that goes, um, but so f- plans for after school, um, I would, I would really enjoy kind of pursuing this restoration, um, route. I'm really interested mm-hmm. in expanding to other organisms as well, or other ecosystems like coral reefs or mm-hmm. mangroves. Um, and I am currently collaborating with two, um, other students at OSU. Um, we, kind of created we're calling ourselves urban reef lab it's kind of just a, a think tank currently um <laughs> but we're awesome. we're in collaboration with a nonprofit in puerto rico um sociedad um ambiente marina and we are currently writing some grants to try and find funding for after school um potentially exploring the 3d printing of corals um as a restoration oh, technique wow. for coral restoration 
So the Urban Urban Reef Lab, was that it? You guys will be busy. The think tank will be busy. Your lab is open. <laughs> wow, that sounds amazing. <laughs> so, you know, from the East Coast to the West Coast to Puerto Rico, globally, it seems like these habitats are super important to a lot of people. So why should, you know, listeners out there, you know, care about oyster reefs, especially here on the West Coast, where it's just starting to be embraced? Why are these habitats so important? Yeah, so oysters, um, they provide a huge array of ecosystem services. Um, so these these services to kind of human well-being um, mm-hmm. include water filtration, so improved water quality. Um, they protect shorelines um, from erosion um, mm-hmm. by attenuating wave action. Um, and increasing sedimentation. They also provide habitat for a range of organisms. Um, They can increase fish assemblages. um, And they also contribute a lot to nutrient cycling and um, um, sequestering or bringing out nitrogen, uh, nitrates from the water column. Um, So just, I mean, yeah, just a lot of different- So many things. Yeah, just so many things. and. Coral, coral reefs are very similar in that as well, providing that habitat, providing, um, you know, fi- like increased fist assemblages, that coastal protection. And so there's a lot of things for, you know, and even just recreation and, and the aesthetic right. nature. Yeah. Aesthetically pleasing nature of, you know. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that's something that at least for me, I have so little experience with oysters, knowing that they're on the same level as corals in terms of all of these things that they provide. And yet oysters are kind of unseen, right? In this murky water, you know, it's not quite as colorful. Well, actually it is. I've just recently seen pictures of the reefs here on the West Coast are actually more colorful than you think. Um, But just for people to appreciate how important they are is, is a great first step. And it sounds like your work will help to kind of open our eyes on the West Coast to how amazing they are. So awesome. Well, it's, so exciting to hear that you've still got some time to think about things beyond this current disruption. And um, do you have any, uh, we have two traditions on the show. So we like to ask people for any advice they'd like to share with either their former undergraduate self or maybe other grad students who are in a similar boat or anybody really. Do you have any advice you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think two pieces, one for general graduate school and then one for this current um, situation, this stay at home situation. Um, For graduate school, one thing that's helped me a lot is kind of in a way calibrating my experience. So finding someone I'm comfortable to talk with about how I feel where I'm at with the program. can really help me move through some of the challenges that we face in grad school. Um, so finding someone that I'm comfortable to talk with about all of those things. Um, and then for this this stay-at-home situation, one thing that's helped me a lot is kind of creating a routine for myself, which I'm sure, sure everyone's been hearing as well, is that that's like, Absolutely. yeah, creating a, a daily routine and then also kind of like a weekly routine of like what I want my work to be that day and then kind of reflecting each day on like what I actually accomplished and and being proud of what I accomplished because I think sometimes it can be hard to keep that motivation going when you're when you're at home. Yes. 
That is such great advice. I mean, I'm personally benefiting from that right now. I think you you nailed it that we've all been hearing, you know, create a routine, but but that is equally as important as reflecting on that and, you know, giving yourself a pat on the back for little positives. That's great. And I think putting those two pieces of advice together, just still staying in contact with maybe that one person you can kind of either commiserate with or just be like, this is what I'm thinking about because there are a lot of grad students who are going through similar challenges, not just COVID-19, but just grad school in general. So that's excellent advice. (laughs) Awesome. So our second tradition is to ask you for a song of your choice that we play your, your show out on. And so can you tell us what song you chose and why you picked this song? Queen Bee. That is my favorite song right now. Yes. I, it, I've been listening to it nonstop being in grad school and it's been like keeping me happy. I feel like it's just so upbeat. (laughs) After listening to it, when you sent me a clip, I, I would have to agree with that. It's definitely a really positive vibe. So uh, we will play that for everyone's benefit, some positive vibes for your Sunday. Uh, thank you so much, Megan, for coming on the show and uh, sharing your work and some of your thoughts on how to carry on in the midst of uncertainty. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, listeners, here is Queen Bee by Taj Mahal. for listening if you want to support the show tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on apple Podcasts, and follow us on twitter and facebook at kbvrid this theme music was performed by the osu drumline and the intro jingle was created by olin Hamath. special thanks to the supporting staff at kbvr that allow the show and podcast to be possible this show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.